Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program dedicated to engaging in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Why do we do what we do in the work of missions? What is it that motivates men and women to sell all and go to strange and remote places around the world to preach the gospel of Christ? The textbook answer is fourfold. The command of Christ, number one, which is obeyed out of love for God. Secondly, the need of humanity, which stirs in men's hearts a compassion for sinners. Thirdly, the judgment seat of Christ and its accompanying promise of reward or loss. And all of these come together in the fourth and final of those motives, the glory of God. But being properly motivated is more than an outline. It's a struggle. And it's a struggle that has significant implications. Implications for what a missionary emphasizes in the investment of his time, what he expects to gain for his labors, the methods he's willing to employ, and the difficulties he's willing to endure. My guest for today's Great Commission conversation is missionary Stephen Holt. Brother Holt has served in the country of Sierra Leone since 2009. The living conditions in a place like Sierra Leone are difficult enough. More on that in the second part of our interview. But Stephen and his wife Laura have had much more than primitive living conditions to overcome. In this interview, I asked Brother Holt to take us back to their survey trip in 2005 to explain how his motives for foreign mission labor were adjusted before ever relocating to that field, and it becomes easy to see how that proper motivation has translated into spiritual fruit and longevity. With that introduction, here's part one of a two-part interview with missionary Stephen Holt. Today's topic, Motives for Missions. Brother Holt, I'm looking forward to talking with you about motives for missions, as well as the strategy that you've employed for gospel ministry in West Africa. But maybe we should start with a little bit of your testimony. Uh, you were something of a latecomer to Christ, so maybe you could tell us, first of all, how you got saved and and what uh, how you got involved in ministry. Sure. Uh, well, Brother Lee, thanks for uh, taking this time as well, but let, let me just quickly recap. I was 36 years old when I got saved. Uh, I had 14 years in the United States Coast Guard at the time. And it's kind of funny the way the whole thing worked out. A a gentleman, a a fellow Coastie, uh, had uh, been watching a a late television uh, broadcast and ended up watching a uh, Drawing Men to Christ video, and he got saved watching that video. Wow. Um, He then contacted the pastor of the church that sponsored that video. The church had only been organized for about a year. They didn't didn't have a building. They were meeting in the pastor's uh, living room. Um, That young man that got saved, his name was Raymond. He then, about a month later, Witness to another Coastie, his name's Kevin, and he got saved. Then a month later, that guy, Kevin, witnessed to me, and I got saved. Amen. Then, almost to the day, a month later, I had the privilege of leading Laura, my wife, and Danielle, our daughter, to the Lord. Amen. 
Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Bro- brother, of course, this this podcast is designed to talk about missions, but I love to start t- with with the conversion stories because that's always missions in, yes. in its own way. Uh, it, it involved somebody taking the, the truth that they had and sharing it with somebody else. That is, that's missions at its essence. And uh, we're all, in a sense, the product of missions. That's a blessing. So you sort of, uh, as a as a new convert, you you pretty shortly got involved in ministering the gospel to others. And uh, if I recall, you sort of cut your teeth in, in ministry with uh, nursing home ministry, among other things. So how did you get in? How did you get involved in telling others and get interested in, in ministering in a larger way? Well, that church um, that sponsored that uh, that video where Raymond got saved shortly thereafter started renting a building, uh, an old Grange Hall there in uh, uh, Ledger, Connecticut. We all three were stationed at the Coast Guard Academy uh, in New London. And we all end up fellowshipping at that church and very small, brand new uh, the pastor constantly talked about, we need to witness, we need to witness. And <laughs> I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So, you know, I'm asking questions. Well, what do we do? How do we do? Where do we do? Where do we go? All of those things that, you know, a, a new convert knows nothing about. <clears throat> so we, uh, myself and and my family, uh, we all three got uh, immediately involved in the outreach, uh, the circumstances surrounding uh, opening the nursing home ministry was uh, a much larger story. So I don't want to go through all of that, but let me just say this, as we started with one nursing home and we went to that nursing home for 13 years, every single weekend, my daughter, uh, when she got married, uh, in 2003, that was the first time she had a Saturday off because we were at that nursing home every Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we also added several other nursing homes to that circuit. And so we would travel around that local area and serviced, um, ministered in various nursing homes, uh, several of them. Uh, we did that for years. And that really was our introduction to ministry witnessing public public witnessing public ministry and then uh, the nursing home circuit so you're not uh by, by the time by the time you um so so coming up in our timeline to you you've got this experience in the nursing home ministry and uh it's whet your appetite for for ministry in general so you're you're sort of I said a late comer to Christ. I think you'd agree with that. Age thirty six, and now you're you're actually right. at the point of uh, in ter- career in career terms at the point of retirement uh, with the Coast Guard and and so forth. And the Lord, in the midst of all this, deals with you as uh, in your in your forties, I guess, or or uh, around there right. about going to Bible school, and then somewhere along there. Uh, Sierra Leone came to came upon your radar and the need for the gospel. So, how did that? How did those things materialize? Well, remember Raymond. He <clears throat> was stationed in Mobile and after after New London, and attended Bible school while he was there. Then shortly thereafter, he 
Uh, after graduation, he was transferred to Petaluma, California. And being a training center, uh, international students would come to the training center. And uh, Raymond, being a yeoman uh, administration, he would uh, process people in to the training center. And he had recently started a, a, a small church just outside the base. And he would introduce people to the, uh, to the base and whatnot. But then he would also tell them, listen, um, we've got a small church up the base here. I can come and pick you up on a Sunday, take you home for a, a home-cooked meal and go to, go to church with us. And I can get you back here before, uh, before taps. So two men from Sierra Leone, the Sierra Leonean army, were sent to that training center. And of course, Brother Raymond, you know, uh, had opportunity to talk to them. And eventually they both got saved. And when their training was completed, they went back to Sierra Leone. We, back in Connecticut, were contacted by Brother Ray to just pray for these guys because they're going back and there's not, there's not a lot uh, of opportunity for solid fellowship over there. So we did. And then we lost contact with them altogether. And uh, I'm sorry, we were corresponding with them as well, uh, as well as praying for them. But the communication went silent. Then uh, fast forward to 2003, our daughter gets married. 2004, Laura and I say, "Hmm, we're empty nesters we could go and do anything we really want to. (laughs) So we ended up going to uh, moving to DeLand, Florida to attend the Bible school here at the Bible Baptist church in DeLand. The pastor here, brother James Knox had been to our church several times for special meetings there in Connecticut. Remember, we haven't had any contact with the folks over there in Sierra Leone for years now. I got here to the church. And early on, uh, we probably hadn't been here for a month yet. And the church has, since its inception, had sent printed material, recorded material around the world uh, just to be a help to, uh, to other believers. Well, they had in the uh, fellowship area, they had a, 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 a mailing set up. So they've got all these boxes with books and whatnot in them. And they're putting the mailing labels on the boxes. And I'm just walking around. Look, I've never seen anything like this before. I was just so impressed. And I noticed one of the mailing labels. It said Sierra Leone. And the addressee was Michael Mansouray, the very man that we had been contacting and corresponding with many years before. Pastor Knox. Obviously, uh, noticed my surprise, and uh, I explained to him, this is the guy that we used to talk to. And he said, brother, no chance meetings. You probably need to follow up on this. So we reconnected and started corresponding again. That really was what catapulted the whole next three years of Bible school and our uh, redirection, if you will, from my focus of domestic, 
we've got to keep the churches in America going. If America goes down, the whole mission economy implodes. So we've got to strengthen the local church. We've got to be all about the American churches first and foremost. Well, <laughs> the Lord had other ideas. So he, uh, he really just laid it on my heart and, and, and Laura's as well, probably more so Laura. Um, I still had that, you know, we got to keep the domestic fires burning. Uh, but she, uh, she had a, a focus and an interest uh, for missions long before I did. And it was truly that incident that really redirected our focus. So then by 2005, about 16 months later, we're on an airplane going over to Sierra Leone for a, for a mission, uh, for a survey trip. We were there for about 30 days. That's, um, that's an amazing story, brother. I'm always, uh, impressed and, and with, with what I sometimes call God's network. When you were talking about those coasties in your, in, in the early part of your testimony, I, <laughs> I, I forgot who you, who you were talking about initially with, with this guy, Raymond, I, I know him as, as brother Ray. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and, uh, knew him actually, I, I knew brother Ray down in the, uh, around the Gulf coast before I met you. And then that connection to Sierra Leone to show up on a, on a label in, on a box in Deland, Florida, those years later, if God is not in all of that, I, I don't know how else you would account for these things. I just praise the Lord. God's up to something. That's right. You can't. You can't account for any of that stuff if you take the Lord out of the whole equation. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, Brother Holt, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is is motives for missions. And some these these programs that these interviews that I do, I usually try to organize them around some some kind of theme that is of importance to the larger enterprise of missions and and delves into mission strategy and missions philosophy, if you would. And the first time that I saw your, your missions presentation down in Alabama before you and Miss Laura went to Sierra Leone full-time uh, as supported missionaries, you told a story about your survey trip to Sierra Leone that you just mentioned that left a real impression upon me, and I hope that I remember it right, um, and, and I'm going to ask you to relate it, if you would, but you went to spy out the land with a burden for the Sierra Leonean people, and, and it's good that you should have such a burden. This comes up regularly as we talk about missions, as we see missions presentation, as the need of people, sinners, is impressed upon us, and and it is important that we should have a compassion for sinners. But before that trip was over, if if I if my memory serves me uh, uh, right, you actually experienced something of an adjustment in your perspective on what it was that would get you to that field and keep you there. And I've never forgotten this, and I was wondering if you would walk us through that experience on the on the back end of that survey trip and how that adjustment in perspective and motivation has helped to keep you uh, faithful over the years. Oh, amen. Let me say this to begin with, 
shortly before we left on the survey trip in 2005, <clears throat> our pastor uh, gave us some very sound advice. And that was, he said, look, I know you guys got a burden for Sierra Leone, those lost souls over there. But he said, you're going here thinking that that's the right direction. And we did believe that. And I believe he did as well. But he very wisely said, look, if you have to come back and tell the church that you made a mistake, that it's just not the right fit, there's no shame in it. Yeah. And that the Lord just led you. He wanted you to see if you would be willing to go, and then perhaps he's going to send you somewhere else. Well, that stuck with me. He said, you know, you need to be listening for no. So keep your ears and your heart open. And I, th that became the, the best advice, some of the best advice I've ever received in my life. I really appreciate you mentioning that. I think that's a very appropriate way to take a survey trip. Uh, otherwise, what's the point in a survey? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, we got to Sierra Leone and the uh, the gentleman that I mentioned earlier, Michael Mansouray, um, they met us at the airport. And you got to understand, the airport at that time was precious little more than a, uh, a rutted out um, concrete runway. Um, and the, the terminal, if you will, was precious little more than just a, a metal roof with open sides. <clears throat> and so we got, uh, we got through all of that and ended up uh, going over to the, the mainland side. Now the airport is on a, uh, on a peninsula and you have to cross the bay to, uh, to, to get into what's the capital city of Freetown. Well, in that time, 2005, the trip across the bay was in a uh, Vietnam War vintage helicopter, and the pilot looked and acted like he'd been there for a long, long time. <laughs> and uh, we uh, we finally got over. And uh, incidentally, those helicopters there were two of them. Neither one of them is in service anymore. One of them crashed, killing several of the people on board, and um, the other one was just grounded and has never been repaired there's now uh water taxis motorboats that go back and forth there now it's much safer well we get to sierra leone and we we get into freetown and we're we're spending some time with brother michael mansoray and the church that uh, that he's the pastor of and <clears throat> we're being introduced to other other churches and and villages and whatnot and we're just really um at first having a great time, but as the time wore on, we're getting weary. It's hot, it's humid, and I'm really getting tired. I know Laura is getting worn out and you know, you just get to that point where you say, really, is, is this really what we're gonna do for the rest of our lives? Well, let me fast forward. We're down to about the last two days or so of our survey trip. 
And Laura recognized something in me that I didn't. And she could tell that I was, I was truly troubled. And I was, I was so unsettled. I kept hearing Pastor, Pastor Knox telling me, you know, no is an answer, just like yes. And it's one evening, I'm sitting on the back side of the mission house that we were at, and it's overlooking uh, one of the rivers right there in Freetown. And brother, I'm, I'm, I'm bawling. And uh, I'm just asking the Lord, you know, Lord, you got to show me something because I cannot tell you with a clear conscience that I want to be here. Lord, I don't love this place. This place smells. It's dirty. The people are dirty. The people smell. The food stinks. It's not what I got in mind. But, Lord, you got to tell me something. And because, I, again, I told him, Lord, I cannot tell you I want to be here. I do not love these people. I do not love this country. I do not love being here. But I went there convinced that I loved those people and I had a burden for their souls. So much of that wore off in that 30 days. But as I sat there, the Lord brought a couple of verses back to my mind. John 21 15, 16, and 17, the Lord asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. And ask him again, Lord, uh, Peter, do you love me? Well, yeah, of course I love you. By the time the third one came around, I was finally starting to understand. Stephen, do you love me yeah and and the light shone in and the lord really just spoke to me and it was i never asked you to love them i asked you to love me do you love me and i could honestly say that very second yes lord i love you and it's like he said good I'll teach you how to love them. And the last two days of that survey trip were better than all the first, the beginning of that trip. It was, it was a, a life-changing experience. And so we came back to the United States and uh, we finished our, our time in Bible school and then hit the road for evangelism. And there we were, 2009, been there since. Praise the Lord, that brother. That is that story is every bit as powerful and impactful. Uh, hearing it the second time as it was the first time that I heard it, and I really appreciate you sharing that that uh, experience that you had there. I, I want to inter interject. I don't. I don't want to be overly analytical about these things. I'm not suggesting that the the help and illumination that you receive from the Lord at the end of that step that uh, survey can necessarily be orchestrated for others. But I would like to observe that it's probably a good thing that you didn't take a one-week survey or a two-week survey. 
because it's it's unlikely that you could have had that experience in a shorter period of time. I simply interject that here to say that I do think that a protracted survey trip has some value to it that that um, that is worth consideration for sending churches and sending pastors as we think about the, the the proper way to go about this and the best way to get the needed exposure to a field before making a lifetime commitment to a given place. We've often thought about that as well. If, if we had only been there for, you know, a typical two-week survey trip, the changes in life and, and living um, to a, a third world country and especially let me say it, an African third world level country um, is so, is so different. You know, you can go to South America and you can probably make the adjustment a little more easily. Um, you go to a, a European country and I don't suspect that outside of the language that culturally it's going to be so uh, diametrically different, but Brother, Africa is just a, a continent of its own, and because there's so much tradition and and so much uh, cultural difference, even within countries within Africa, I mean, the West African states, uh, they're, they're very, very different going from one to the other, and, you know, that's the, the same group of people. So here comes, you know... Uh, a spoiled American, and uh, you immerse yourself in that, you can't make those adjustments. You can't understand. You cannot assimilate in in two weeks. You're, <laughs> you're at the, the mercy of the person that's leading you around. Um, they're going to want to show you what they want you to see so that you're going to partner with them exclusively. And those things don't come out in a week or two. Sure. Well, and that's not to say that uh, it doesn't mean that new missionaries to the field can't learn that after after they've already deployed to the field. But it sure seems like if you can get that adjustment and if you can have that perspective earlier, that it would it would save a lot of difficulty and heartache. And and so I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that. How do you think? An improper motive for missions can adversely affect the practical work of missions because because making those adjustments that you've just described in a place like Sierra Leone or any other number of places on the continent of Africa and elsewhere, uh, if you're not properly motivated, it's going to be really difficult to stay put. And even let's just be honest there, it is it is not uncommon for uh, young missionaries or new missionaries to go to a foreign field and become very cynical about the people, um, about the culture. And and when you develop a bad attitude and, and you're not Christ focused, uh, right. it has other implications for the work that are that are unhealthy. So how do you think that how do you think improper motives for missions can have a have a negative impact on the on the work? Well, the. The plight of just about every African nation people is the same. And Americans like to be the fixers. And 
you know, we went and we, we did have that, um, that concern for their physical needs and, and we still do. However, if, excuse me, if that's the motivation, then that will, in most cases, I believe it will soon wear off. There is a need in every physical aspect of life and they can't fix it themselves. It's been this way for centuries. And the more money that gets poured in, the more dependent they become upon the West to come and fix it for them. And it's never been fixed. Sure. Um, The, the love that you have for those people, um, in a humanitarian sense. And if that is the mainstay of your focus, very, very soon you're going to be overcome by the insurmountable magnitude of the problem. It's not fixable. It will take as many centuries to fix it as it took for them to get into the condition they're in now. And if, if the humanitarian aspect is your, is your main focus, then the priority is misplaced. The focus must be on the glory of God. The Lord Jesus Christ has to be the main focus of the ministry, and the ministry cannot be humanitarian. Humanitarian's important. It needs to be an aspect of the mission, of, of any missionary's mission uh, ministry over there. But oh my, if that's the reason you're there, it's it's misplaced because, as you well know, uh, it's the souls of those people, not the bodies of those people that need to be ministered to first and foremost. Once that's been accomplished, if you have the time and the resources, the ability, then minister to their physical needs. I'm not a doctor. Uh, I can't I can't mend a body. There are, there are many, many people over there that can, but if you're a gospel missionary, that has to be your focus. Right. The NGOs are throughout Africa in large numbers. They, for the most part, take care of those humanitarian needs and they do it well. But a missionary, a gospel missionary, that's not his focus. Can, can doctors go over there and minister? Absolutely, they do. But uh, I, I truly believe that if it's a church-sent missionary on the field to minister to the spiritual needs, to present the gospel to a lost and dying group of people, that has to be the focus. And if it takes your entire life, then so be it. But it's a, it's a rare, rare man and woman who can do both equally equally well and accomplish what's necessary. It, more often than not, I see that the physical needs always uh, overshadow the spiritual needs. Yeah. And my goodness, it's almost, it's, it's just natural. You're looking at people that you your heart is broken for and they're dying. And unfortunately, so many, so often, the death is avoidable, be it malaria or dehydration or malnutrition. 
These things are avoidable, uh, but you can't feed everybody. But you can certainly minister to them spiritually. And that's, that's really our call. It has to be our focus. It has to be. Sure, sure. Well, brother, I might, I might also add to that, that while the, that humanitarian pool um, can tend to losing one's focus, the real calling, which is, which is a gospel calling, I'm afraid, and, and, and I, I've witnessed personally that this is that this can be an issue in in Africa. An improper motive can also lead to an emphasis on results. I mean, if you're if if the goal is to please the Lord and honor Him, then you you don't get trapped into the whole numbers game and trying to generate prayer letter material. And look at all of the new converts that I have, and look at all of these raised hands. If our if our focus is not on pleasing the Lord, we also can get caught up in an overemphasis on results, and that often results in in unethical methods related to church planting and evangelism, manipulation, and I think that. Uh, I think that Africa is particularly susceptible to those kinds of to those kinds of failures and missions, and I think that that is related to a misplaced motive for what it is that we're we're trying to accomplish on the foreign field. I agree completely. the The way you described in your survey trip the the fashion in which the Lord dealt with you that if you'll love me, that I'll teach you how to love these people. I think that that order is is so critically important, and it is my observation. I've been keeping up with your ministry for as long as you've been in Sierra Leone. I, I would I would have to theorize that 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 motivation of of loving God of of seeking His glory is foundational for your ministry, and it is uh, one of the things that is has fundamentally helped you to to carry on through some really difficult seasons in your time on the field. And I, and I want to ask you a, a little bit about this uh, today. What were some of the challenges that you faced early on in your deployment to Sierra Leone? And, and how did that, how did your focus on the Lord and his word help to carry you through that? I know you went through some difficult things just in those early years of ministry and, and keeping the right focus was critical to your, to your stay in the course. Yes, sir. Um, let me let me start off uh, in Freetown. The first year, um, <clears throat> I uh, Laura and I had rented a house in Freetown, and we were working with Brother Michael Mansoray, the man that I spoke of uh, earlier on. <clears throat> and um, I had gone to uh, Sierra Leone alone in early uh, two thousand and nine, and. I, on the invitation of a, of a pastor we met on deputation up in Canada, he was going to be going to Liberia. He asked me if I'd like to go along with him. And I, I of course, I'd like to go along. Um, found out that he was only going to be going for about two weeks. And I said, there's no way I can justify spending that much money on a on an uncomfortable airplane ride. <laughs> uh, 
to Sierra Leone for that kind of money. I, I, so I told him, I said, well, you know, when, when the conference that we'll, we'll be going to in Liberia compl- uh, concludes, I'm going to, I'm going to travel over to Sierra Leone and spend a few months there and, uh, rent the house, get a bank account, all those things that are necessary. And I just wanted them in place on the ground before Laura came over. Now, Michael Manseray, uh, we had corresponded and I, I, I was asking him, you know, through correspondence, what his uh, plan was for evangelism. Where's the church going to be, you know, a year from now, two years from now. Um, and he was giving me all the right answers I got there and found out that uh, he was talking a lot and doing nothing. And so um, I, uh, I truly tried to inspire them to let's get involved in evangelism. Let's get some Bible studying going on here. And his main focus was, well, yeah, but we want you to, we need a new church building. We want you to. You know, we need con- we need cement to mix concrete to, uh, to to finish the floor. All of these things, and I said, brother, that's not what I'm here for. Let's get out and do some evangelism. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it never happened. So it was funny because during that time in our transfer from Liberia over to Sierra Leone, I met a pastor in. Bo, which is one of the first cities that you come to uh, crossing over the border. And um, he had a he had started a, a church in in Bo, uh, a little Baptist church in Bo. And so having met him, uh, he and I would would talk on the phone once in a while. And he he asked me to come back to Bo because he wanted to show me um, an outreach that they had started and was wondering if I'd like to help. That's how we got introduced to where we are now, the, the village of Beaumont. I met with the members of the community church in Beaumont and told them, look, um, again, I, I'm here for evangelism. I'm here for Bible training. Any of those things that you want uh, you want to do, if, if you want me to help you with those things, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, if, um, if if there's any, any anything else on your agenda, that's not what I'm here for. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we want you to come. We want to learn the Bible. We we need to do evangelism. We want to see everybody else get saved as well. Um, so I got to Baoma and had met with the men of the church, and they had agreed. Yes, we want you to come and teach us the Bible, and we want to get involved in uh, evangelism. Well, when when I finally moved there, um, we soon found out that they had their own agenda. And just like in Freetown, they wanted a new church building. They wanted to build a school. They wanted me to help them with an orphanage and all these things. And I said, brethren, that is not what I came here for. And you know that. Well, things just deteriorated from there. So much to the point that um, we uh, we were asked to leave the church. Um, they didn't like the Bible teaching. <clears throat> they were um, they were becoming um, influenced by a a Nigerian pastor who was bringing in all the the Pentecostal uh, uh, 
prosperity foolishness. And so um, when they realized I was not going to be giving them the things that they wanted, things turned very bitter and very angry, so much so that on the hill that leads up to our house, uh, at that time, it was just covered with uh, elephant grass. And this stuff grows, you know, over eight, 10 feet tall. And in the dry season, um, it is just waiting to catch on fire. And so that's exactly what they did. They set that hill on fire uh, more than once, and it uh, just would rush up the top of that hill, threatening the house and uh, fuel storage and all of that. Um, another time I was leaving uh, early in the morning to go to Bo for a, uh, for a supply run, and uh, they pelted my, my, my truck, the Land Cruiser, pelted it with rocks, cracked the windshield and such. Um, but Laura and I had decided, as soon as this stuff started happening, because we pretty much could sense that things were coming before all of this, but we told, we, we told each other, look, we, we're, we're not going to relinquish the high ground. We're just going to have to outgrace them. Amen. And uh, let me just say that the Lord at that point was still teaching us how to love them. And, and we, we did not retaliate. We did not respond in kind. We just loved them. And once they finally realized that, look, they're not here to, to give us handouts, they're here to teach the Bible. They're going to take care of uh, our kids in the in the uh, children's church and uh, help us learn the Bible. The few serious men that left the uh, the community church to attend the Bible school, um, they their change, their salvation experience was a testimony to the rest of that other church. And to the town people, that uh, there, there, there really must be something to all this. Maybe there's more to this that those missionaries are about than you know, than giving us things. And so, really, the um, the emphasis being on on the spiritual aspect of life again, that was the motive we went there, and that was the direction we had to maintain. And the Lord just blessed it. We're just blessed because things shortly thereafter started to calm down and we started to become more accepted um, by the, by the, the people, the, the villagers, not so much by the leadership that came much later, but nonetheless, uh, they even came around after a while. Amen. Well, having overcome the, the difficulty of false brethren and having, established a, a sound testimony among the people that's uh that's one challenge that you face that's a that's a huge hurdle that you had to overcome but uh you've also you and Laura both have had your fair share of health difficulties um in in that very difficult uh climate and um I, I was wondering if you could if you could speak to that briefly, the, that 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 comes with its own set of challenges, and and it's not uh, it's something that that many missionaries experience. You guys have probably had perhaps more than your fair share of health challenges, I'd say. Well, 
um, I, I'm sure malaria is a, a threat and a problem just about everywhere where it's hot and wet. Um, we, we have had malaria multiple times and it's, it became particularly serious for Laura. Um, she had had it, had malaria a couple of times. She had dengue fever. Um, all of those things can be overcome, but they leave, they leave scars. And over time, it is debilitating. Unfortunately for Laura, she had a pre-existing condition, um, something that was uh, surgically uh, dealt with back in 1997. And um, she was doing quite well. Um, then we, we ended up with malaria. She ended up with malaria a couple of times and that dengue fever, uh, and then the cerebral malaria, I mean, just, that just tore her down and uh, her health has never really been good since then. And as a matter of fact, that's, that's why she had to return to the States, um, and it's very unlikely that she'll ever be able to be uh, to return to Sierra Leone. Her her health just will will not uh, tolerate it. So that brings me to uh, an, another uh, line of questions here. A couple more things that I wanted to cover under this heading of motive for missions. Um, you've been faced with some really difficult decisions in recent years, like whether uh, Miss Laura would, would return home and, and, and you guys had to make the difficult decision that you would go back alone. Uh, in relation to that and sort of mixed in with all of that was an outbreak of Ebola back in, in 2012. And you made the difficult decision at that time to remain in the country. And, and I do want to say that 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 for you guys, I think that was a very, uh, that was a difficult decision. That was a very personal decision. And, and I, I'm confident that you would not cast aspersions upon those that left uh, other gospel workers. But in any case, you determined to stay. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that experience and explain a bit of the spiritual and practical calculus that went into that decision to remain in the country. Well, we before we ever left the United States, uh, and Laura's the one who said this, she said, uh, you know, quitting is not an option. So in other words, we've surrendered and whatever comes, we're not quitting. And so when the Ebola, and, and we, we've been living by that, and when, when the Ebola outbreak started overtaking the countries around us. It started in Guinea, and then uh, and then went to Liberia, and then from Liberia into Sierra Leone. the The plan that we had already had in place was such a blessing, and it made making that decision much. Uh, I'm not going to say easier, but we both realized that once the um, once the countries uh, around us, but especially once Sierra Leone, it was, became so evident that they were just incapable of halting the rapid spread of this virus. 
and a lot of that was due to cultural issues. But the uh, the medical infrastructure w has been compromised since uh, since the Brits left in 1961. But um, it it really just showed its uh, inability to cope with uh, a problem of this magnitude. Well, we had determined that um, there were some signs, uh, some some uh, benchmarks, I would say, that uh, if it came to a point where we had to leave, that Laura would leave first. And if it was, uh, if it were a dire emergency, we, we would both leave together. But uh, we had determined that if it, um, if it was something that we thought we could handle, that Laura would leave first and I would follow shortly thereafter because I would have to go and uh, secure the compound, uh, try to make it uh, uh, safer to be left unoccupied. So when it became obvious, uh, the problem, the, the, the magnitude of the problem, and then the, uh, the U.S. Embassy, when they started sending their non-essential personnel back to the States, well, we just said, okay, that's, that's one of our benchmarks. And so, Laura, you're going to have to go, and I'll follow when I can. And so I left her that day at the water taxi in Freetown. And now I'm facing a, uh, a minimum of eight-hour drive, uh, about, about 200 miles uh, back to our compound. And um, when we were on the last leg of that trip going through the, the last uh, 37 miles is just all a horribly deteriorated dirt road. And um, we, uh, I, I had picked up uh, a, a brother uh, from a, a nearby village who just happened to be in Bow when I was driving through. So I was giving him a ride back as well. And uh, we went through one village and um, that, that man, that his name's David, David Johnny. He asked me to stop and I said, brother, I'm tired, man. I, I, I'm just, a, I, I really don't want to stop. I don't want to talk to anybody. Um, I, I'm just having a time of it right now. And, uh, he said, no, 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 you need to stop. So I stopped and, uh, a, a guy comes out and it's, it's dark now. And a guy comes out of the shadows of the, the bush and he starts talking to David and they're going on in Monday. So I don't have a clue what they're saying. And uh, anyways, uh, he, he says that that man says to me that, that uh, through through David, he says, uh, you go. Yeah, I go. I'm going home. <laughs> it's, you you leave. Yeah, I'm leaving. I'm going home. Well. He's asking if I'm going to leave Sierra Leone like everybody else did. Right. And I, and I'll say, I'm saying, yeah, I'm going home. I'm going, you know, the last, you know, 20 some odd miles up to the compound. I'm tired. I want to go to bed. Um, and when David explained that, and he's, he explains to this, to this gentleman, um, no, he's not leaving us. He's staying. He's staying with us. Um, that that man's countenance lit up, and he goes bounding back off into the bush. 
we drive away and David explains to me, Stephen, that, that guy's the Paramount chief's uh, son-in-law. And um, he is so thrilled that you aren't abandoning us. And that became a, a turning point in our ministry and in our relationship with not just our village, but the surrounding villages around. So for the next two years, nobody can, nobody can go from uh, Sierra Leone over to the United States or, or most of the European countries as well. In fact, we, uh, we were in a lockdown shortly thereafter where there wasn't even any inter-village travel allowed. Uh, so uh, when, when they realized that I was committed to them, that Laura was committed to them, things things really changed and things got uh got very civil and even quite friendly after that and i guess that that has resulted even that 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 uh civility the the appreciation that some of the sierra leonean people have developed for you and your presence there because of your uh continuance with them through that through that difficult season that's manifested itself in some of the ministry that you've done subsequently. I guess that's uh, how, in, in what ways have that, has that served to open some doors for you ever since and, and the receptivity of the people, because uh, for our listeners, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, a bit more in a, in a following segment, but Sierra Leone is a majority Muslim country. So, it's 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 unlike some of its uh, some other African nations where the presence of a Christian is a is a commonplace thing, and uh, welcome in just about everywhere you go. So your decision to stay, how has that impacted ministry since then? Well, the uh, the the fact that we were now becoming accepted truly opened some doors. And to this day, um, that reputation, um, sometimes we go to a, a new village, uh, quite some distance from where we live. And um, as we're making contact, um, sometimes I'll hear them say, oh, you're that white guy who stayed here through Ebola. <laughs> uh, you know that white missionary that uh, that helped uh, you know uh, or uh, Malunya chiefdom uh, during the Ebola, um, and, and in fact we did. I mean, you, you got to understand in Balmon uh, at that time there were two trucks, large trucks, like uh, uh, two ton, five ton trucks um, that were used for transporting people and supplies. Well. During the Ebola, those things shut down. The uh, the people just left. The drivers just left. So there's, I think at that time, one other vehicle, and then myself in in the village and the surrounding villages. That's that's it. And so, oftentimes, um, people still needed to go to the hospital, although it was not Ebola related. And so they would often come to me. And say, can can you take my can you take my daughter to the hospital? Can you can you help my son? Um, 
And so we really became the ambulance service for not only Beaumont, but again, other villages nearby. Um, and there, at that time, there was a Dutch-run hospital about an hour and 45 minutes away. Uh, and I would, I would take them to that hospital, and it really was probably the, one of the best hospitals in the area. And that, along with having decided to stay through the, uh, the, the virus, um, that to this day, um, I hear that. Uh, and so that has opened doors for us. And um, prior to that time, um, I could not get a hearing. Um, people would come. And they'd listen for a few minutes, but as soon as they realized that I wasn't giving stuff away and we weren't going to show a movie or something, um, they would just turn around and walk away. And uh, it, it's so different now. So, so different. Hey, ma'am. Uh, brother, before we, before we wind this segment up, um, of course, after, after Miss Laura came home from because of the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone. And she already had uh, some significant health problems. And uh, if, if my memory serves me, she did make an attempt to, to return to Sierra Leone, but it became evident that um, she was not going to be able to remain in the country with you because of her health condition. And so, uh, because of her health problems, it necessitated her return to the States. I'm wondering if you could comment on, on how the two of you navigated the difficult decision to continue to work apart. And I, I wouldn't even suggest that this is, that this is uh, prescriptive for other families, other mission works. But Laura is a, and I, I happen to know, I, in, in my opinion, your wife is an exceptional lady, even among great uh, missionary wives, and she's figured so largely into the into the story that you've shared with us today, including her burden for for missions in the first place and uh, her purpose and and determination not to quit under any circumstances. And I think that she has been uh, certainly your biggest cheerleader of all to press on in the work. How did you navigate that? And and y'all are you guys are continuing this. You're you're having to work apart, and yet she continues to be a part of the work from the state. So could you comment on on how that this dynamic going forward, where you're deployed in Sierra Leone, and she's uh, supporting the work stateside? Yes, let me just say that if it were not for Laura, I wouldn't be there. Uh, as I stated earlier, you know, she had a, uh, an interest uh, in missions, foreign missions, long, long before I did. And um, had she not, or had we not been uh, equally yoked, this could never have worked, just simply would not have worked. It would have failed years and years ago. Laura's gift is illustration. She's a science illustrator by training. Um, though she never worked in that field, uh, when 
we got called to the mission field, um, all of that was put aside as far as any uh, aspirations for freelance illustration work. But we soon recognized, uh, even on our survey trip, that the vast majority of people over there cannot read, nor will they ever learn to read. It's just not available. Um, especially the women and the young girls, they, uh, they're, they're left out of all of that. And so going with an open Bible in hand is, quite honestly, at that point, it was meaningless to these people. They can't read. And so that's just another uh, sealed book to them, like every other book. So Laura started illustrating some of the Bible stories uh, and Bible characters. And we've developed um, these wordless illustration books. And without Laura, that doesn't happen. We don't have any other means to create these books. But we had to come to the realization that she just cannot survive over there. And the weather was just debilitating to her uh, with this pre-existing condition. And um, it, uh, she'd gotten uh, the cerebral malaria and it, it just wiped her out. So we decided that the resources available here in the States, um, the, uh, the research material going online and being able to uh, take a picture uh, and use some of the uh, attributes of a, of a face found on, uh, on the internet, she could then transfer that uh, and use it in her drawing, her sketching uh, for our books. So with all that in mind, we, we collectively came to the realization that she has got to go. She's got to go back. Um, she needs to be here for, for medical treatment, and she needs to be here for the medications that she needs, which are unavailable, uh, unavailable at all anywhere in Africa. So um, she continues to be a, a major part of the ministry by her artwork and writing, not just the field report. I mean, I hope, I hope your listeners will, uh, will take the time to go to the website and, and look at some of our, our field reports, and she has a blog as well. So the writing, at this point, the writing is taking um, uh, more of a focus. Not that the artwork isn't, but her health is such right now that um, it's very difficult for her to uh, get any quality art productive time uh, at the drawing table. Uh, but she is able to do some writing, and, uh, and clearly the Lord is using it. She's written for uh, some of the ministries here at BBC. Um, and, and the blog has been a great help to other people as well. And not just in the States, but uh, people around the world have, uh, have gone to the website and just really been helped and blessed by what she's opened her heart about her own situation and condition and how that has affected the ministry. 
If you have enjoyed this conversation with Stephen Holt, I think that you will find the second part of the interview equally interesting. In part two, we'll talk about some of the living conditions in Sierra Leone and Brother Holt's strategy for evangelism in that land. If you're interested in reading the Holt's field reports or keeping up with Mrs. Laura's Fragments of Gold blog, you can visit their website at gatherthefragments.com. I'll provide a link to that site in the episode notes. Thank you for listening to today's Great Commission Conversation. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.